throughout our life, we make all kinds of connections from our neighbors to our coworkers, from family members to people we interact with in business every day. What about the connections we make to ourselves? Today, we'll explore the connections that we make and how they define our lives. This is Things Worth Considering with hosts Gord Riddell and Alexia Georgiousis. It's time to consider the possibilities. Good evening and welcome to Things Worth Considering. We're a weekly talk show and we're all about connections. Uh, the ones that we make, the ones that we miss, and most importantly, our own connection to ourself. Uh, we know our guests uh, will entice you, empower you, and give you all kinds of things that are worth considering. I'm your host, Gord Riddell, and I am here with my co-host, Dr. Alexia Georgiusis, naturopathic doctor extraordinaire. How are oh, you? Oh, well, thank you, Gord. Thank you. <laughs> uh, oh, oh, why did he say that? Uh, we are live, <laughs> and if you would like to join our conversation, please call us. We're toll-free from anywhere in North America at 1-888-346-9141. Tonight's guest is here to talk about another form of, commun- of connection that we probably don't think about unless you have ever had a dog. Uh, and then you know all about canine connections. Um, anyone who's ever had a dog is just so connected. I'd like you to meet Roseanne Venshi. She is a research scientist. She holds a master's degree in forest conservation. She is a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto, working with the Algonquin communities to protect and enhance Ashinaabe customary relationships with forests, animals, and waterways in modern-day resource management regimes. And she also works as a wolf research biologist in the area that she lives. Roseanne initially had a job mapping early canoe routes, which led to an offer to come and actually work with the Algonquins, or for the Algonquins. Thus began her journey of bringing together, through research, the legends and legacy of the Algonquin people. She lives on a 425-acre wilderness property, a passion with her huskies, and runs a dog sledding business. Her embrace of sled dogs and mushing, I love that, mush, uh, mushing dates back to her growing up in northern Ontario. Uh, She's always had a great appreciation for northern Canadian landscapes, winter, and working dogs. She says, connection to canines has flowed naturally throughout my life. Canine and human connections are are not unique to me uh, or for many others. Working in wolf research has taught me how wolves are are guides and teachers. One of the people who wrote on one of your sites said, and I, I think this is just so nice, imagine meeting the coolest person living in the coolest place, doing the coolest thing. This is it. That's just such, I mean, wow, I wish someone would write that about me. Exactly. (laughs) The coolest person in the coolest place doing the coolest thing. Maybe he was was, talking about the temperature that day, though, Garth. That's what it was. (laughs) Sure it was. Roseanne, welcome. Uh, Well, well, thank you for welcoming me, Garth. Good evening. (laughs) Good evening, Alexia. Good evening. So um, how did this begin as a child? You're up in Northern Ontario. Where's Northern Ontario? Well, I was born in Timmins, Ontario. That's north. And that, was, that was pretty north. Yeah. And uh, yeah, my father actually immigrated from Holland and he was working in the forestry camps in the days when there were horse logging operations up there. Yeah. And um, on his days off or the crews on their days off would... Uh, come into the Empire Hotel in downtown Timmins. And that's where my mom was working as a night clerk. And that's where the story all began. 
<laughs> and, uh, yeah, they got together. I was born in Timmins, Ontario. Uh, we had a lovely cottage out on Star Lake, and it was built by a Finlander, all beautiful woodwork. And uh, one day my father came down the hill to the sauna, and he had this nice little fur ball with him. And that was my first uh, relationship with a dog. And his name was Rusty. And uh, yeah, he was our family dog, like so many listeners have out there, family dog and wonderful connection with these oh, yeah. Yeah, little beings. Yep. Okay. So that's how it all started. <laughs> that's how, okay. What about working dogs? Where did you get into being with working dogs? Yeah, the working dog connection was also from Timmins. And, you know, my father, um, after he finished working in the forestry camps, uh, he ran a contracting company. But I quickly learned that any dog can be a working dog because he would put up a ladder and he would call Rusty up onto the roof. And uh, Rusty would run up the ladder really? and be on the roof. And at the cottage, uh, he would dive off the diving board and be in the lake and tell Rusty to follow him off the board and jump in too. And the dog would do it. So I think my father was a wonderful dog trainer and he had a lovely way with dogs and the way he would speak to dogs. And he really had a friendship with dogs and he sort of taught me a lot uh, about how to communicate with dogs and, and develop that friendship and relationship. And that grew into this, um, other category of working dogs outside of your family dog, like, you know, having a team of dogs and they're assist, assisting you, you know, uh, in your environment. And that, that used to be a big thing in, in Northern Canadian cities, you know, people used to get around like, you know, uh, in my father's era with dog teams up North. And so there were still a few dog mushers around and, um, one musher in particular uh, gave my cousin a couple of dogs and my cousin was wanting to train them for an expedition up north on the Missinabi River back then. We were in our early 20s and that was my first experience uh, training working dogs uh, to, go, <laughs> to go up on that journey. However, uh, I don't know that I was a very good trainer of, of that particular team because uh, I brought them all out to my house after having been in a working kennel. I was living at Star Lake in that cottage and I brought them all in the cottage and before long, one of them was sleeping in my bed. So that's not exactly, that's not exactly yeah, you, a working dog really relationship. Exactly. <laughs> oh, it's just her. Right, right. Get into bed with her. <laughs> okay, so much for being the alpha in that pack. Right, right. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. Yeah. Did you, did you end up getting a sense of you know, see, well, like actually, when was the, the difference that you started to see, oh, there's something different about working with working dogs? Because it's still a very deep connection, I would imagine. And I've, you know, I've met, I've had the good fortune of meeting your, I think this is your second team of dogs that you've had. And also they're mostly rescues. Is that correct? I started out with a, a crew of rescues here in our dog sledding operation. But I think one of the most profound relationships I had with a dog was actually that dog that I was sleeping with at Star Lake. And, 
I want to talk more about that. <laughs> yes, I will. If, if someone tuned in just about now, that dog I was sleeping with, they're going to wonder what we're talking about. Please do. <laughs> Yeah, so like that dog was a working dog. It had been chained up most of its life. And often working mm. dogs don't have the opportunity to relate to humans closely. Like they're working dogs. Uh, they're put in a harness and they're, they're, they might be fed a frozen fish. And they have a relationship with their musher or, or trainer. And, and they work in the environment, right? And so I kind of broke them out of that. So Coleman, that particular dog spent a lot of time with me. But like I said, my job was to train those dogs and send them up north on that expedition. So I sent them up the James Bay coast uh, to Moose Factory, which is an island in James Bay offshore of uh, uh, Moosonee, Ontario. And there was a musher up there named Monroe who took the dogs in turn before my cousin and his friend showed up for their expedition. And when Coleman got up there, he refused to eat. He, he, he refused to eat. So Monroe, Monroe called me. He had nobody to sleep with. That's the whole thing. (laughs) And so, and so, so poor Coleman um, was refusing to eat. Monroe called me and said, what, you know, what are you feeding the dog? And, um, I told him and he said, well, that's what I'm trying to feed him." And so anyway, I went to, I went to bed one night after that call at Star Lake and, uh, I don't know, early in the morning, I felt the bed kind of depressed, like the dog was getting on the bed. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, you're a good boy, Coleman, like you're a good boy. And, and that's how profound some of these connections are. It's a connection of spirit as well. And so, yeah, he came back. He came back. That, and he passed. He he did pass. And so, yeah, these are the these Good how choice. these are these are how yeah. big. These are how big relationships can be with canines if you let them into your space and you and you create this safe space for both of you. Um, right. it's an amazing relationship. Wow. Well, that's a beautiful, beautiful story. So he began after you did that, when you felt like the bed depressed, did his behavior then change up with Monroe? Well, he had passed. He, 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 he died. Oh, I'm he, sorry. He, he starved himself. He uh, starved himself and he came to okay. me that way. Okay, and and I could, I could feel, I could feel the bed go down. Right. And I knew it was Coleman. And okay. uh, and that, yeah, that, yeah. that so Coleman couldn't go back to being a working dog. Because w- being a working dog can be a hard life as well, right? And so yes. here on our property, I'm a small kennel. And I only have 22 dogs. And I try to have a really nice, intimate, personal relationship with my dogs. And, and they know who I am. And I really work on building that relationship. And because you can feel it on the sled. When you're sledding with dogs you know and you've got a working relationship with them, uh, you kind of start living through the dogs and living through that moment. Uh, when you're out sledding, it's 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 a lot of fun. As people are saying, like, you know, the comments, people really love it, you know? Yeah. It's just the energy the dogs bring to it, and <laughs> it's, it's exciting. Yeah. Well, and Roseanne, I've witnessed your connection in person with your dogs and it's amazing the love that's there the exchange and they're incredibly healthy 
they're incredibly vibrant and they're happy. They're just, they just seem so happy. And, and I, I think, you know, for you, when, when did you decide that you were going to step into that role of really extending your connection with canines? Because having, you know, so many dogs is a, is a tremendous amount of work, right? Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think it was formative growing up around them that, um, I hate to say this, but maybe it becomes a bit of an addiction. <laughs> I can't imagine being without a canine or canines uh, in my life. And I really haven't been. I've been pretty continuous my whole life with canines around. Uh, even when I was in university, I would have like a dog around or or no friends with a dog that I get close with. Um, but to start here with our operation, I went to a place that, um, it was actually a bit of a puppy mill, um, mm. and some yeah. dogs needed to be rescued. And, and mm. that's where I started. I, I started rescuing dogs from a place where I guess they were just being, um, bred as a business and sometimes not all those dogs sell. Right. And so then all of a sudden you might have a six month year old Husky that that's, um, hasn't been sold that you still have to feed. And so I started picking up those dogs and bringing them here. And my first teams were all rescues, which are difficult to train, right? Because they come out of sometimes some trauma or different backgrounds. And <clears throat> you're not establishing that relationship from day one. So you have to give them a lot of time and space uh, to build the trust they need, yeah. you know, and uh, once that trust is there and they know they're safe, uh, yeah, everything's, um, everything goes pretty smooth. And so from those rescues, uh, I then started breeding my own teams. And so I raised them from pups and, uh, yeah, that's, that's what's happening here now. <laughs> do, you, do you sell them or you keep them all for your own teams? Don't sell them at all. Um, That's I, no, I've, I've been just raising my own for the teams, and I'm a small kennel, so we only run three teams. So I'll I'll guide uh, one team, and people that come to dog sled each get their own team. Uh, they're driving their own sled, and really? uh, it's pretty exciting for them. Yeah. Wow, wow. You did you do your own sled, Alexia? I didn't with Roseanne. I've done, I've gone, but that's, that's something that, well, you know, pre-pandemic, we talked about it and then it hasn't happened, but I do plan to. I want because, a picture of that. Yes, you will. Yeah. Get Roseanne, one. get her up there. <laughs> I will be up there. <laughs> the first time Alexi came, it was really cold and she was going to stay the whole weekend. And she woke up the first morning and said, I'm too cold. It was really cold in the bed. Like the bed was too cold. I have to go back home. <laughs> it's true. You couldn't out it's of 22 true. dogs find a dog for her to sleep I with? Was, I was freezing because also Roseanne's house uses a pellet stove, which I'd never seen before. What's I think that's show? changed now. I'm not sure, but the, the, those, the, anyway, it's very beautiful and not rustic, but it's like, I was not used to that cold. It was in my bones. And I was like, I can't, I had layers, but anyway, let's go back to the dogs. It was it so, a big city, you know? <clears throat> right. No, there wasn't. Hey, I can rough it sometimes. I know. I know. Yeah. For the day. For the right. day. No, more than that. <laughs> anyway. So Roseanne, I want to ask you about a couple of things. And, and first is around 
the um, training with the rescues and you said that you have to give them time, but can you elaborate a bit more on what that looks like, the practical way of what that looks like? Because also I imagine these dogs are going to connect with each other and some will not like each other. Right. Yeah. So sometimes you get a different combination of individuals that, that don't really know each other. And that that's really part of this whole pack dynamic is they like to figure out who's who and what the order is going to be amongst themselves. So that that's yeah. something they sort out socially and then they respect it, you know, but they'll also challenge it. They'll also challenge it. They'll wait for the weak spots you know, if a leader is shown a few weak spots, it's it's their nature as well to challenge it and try. Just to like you're being the owner, they'll they'll always challenge the owner into your bed <laughs> or up on your sofa or all the places you say no. They'll challenge you, and you go, "Oh, well, this is once." Well, you do it once, and they're you've lost. <laughs> do you know? I've gotten a lot tougher as I've gotten older. Like I don't even let any of the dogs in the house. But they all have their own house. So, yeah, there's like no dogs in the bed rule here right now. But, oh, you know, well, maybe in some cases it would be helpful, like when Alex comes over. Exactly. What it's <laughs> <laughs> it funny. might be. On this note, we need to take a break here while we figure out how we're going to get Alexia to stay warmer. And we'll be back in two minutes. <laughs> Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Imagine a place where ancient wisdom and modern research combine to create a non-judgmental, dynamic educational environment. We believe learning is much more than just theories. It is the application of those theories that anchor your learning deep inside yourself. Our physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual selves are embraced and nurtured, learning how to create an internal balance. This is Transformational Arts College of Spiritual and Holistic Training. Since 1988, we continue our mission of spiritually focused education for all who seek. We offer integrative personal development and professional training in spiritual psychotherapy, holistic healthcare, spiritual director, coaching, and esoteric studies. We are located in Lawrence Park in Toronto on Young Street, north of Lawrence Avenue. It's easy to get to and harder to leave. Visit our website at transformationalarts.com or inquire at TAC at transformationalarts.com or call us toll free at 1-888-TAC-SELF. Transformational Arts, bringing body, mind, and spirit together. It's time to serve, learn, change the world. Tune in each week for The Power of Young People to Change the World, hosted by NYLC's CEO, Amy Muirs. The program is a forum for both young people and the adults who love and support them. We make connections with others through stories of change, partnership, and new perspectives of issues facing the world today. Be sure to join us every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time, or anytime on demand on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Things Worth Considering with Gord Riddell and Alexia Georgiusis. We'd love to hear from you via email to info at spiritgrows.ca. That's info at spiritgrows.ca. Now back to Things Worth Considering. Welcome back. We're here with uh, Roseanne, who is a dog sled musher. 
And uh, yeah, we've got uh, Alexia. You were just bringing up uh, yes, sort of an important yes. one because there was just a bust on a couple of places. Uh, That's right, on around so. sled dogs and, yeah. and abuse of sled dogs. So I was wondering, Roseanne, if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I actually w- was reading that story while I was out in British Columbia, and I believe the Humane Society went in and rescued like a lot. It seemed like a couple of hundred dogs, right? Yeah, yeah. So I can't remember the number. <laughs> these are very big commercial kennels, right? And there are re- realities uh, around that for both the dogs and the owners. And um, unfortunately, um, I can tell you from looking after 22 dogs on a one-to-one basis, like this is this is a big commitment if you want to give them that type of care, right? And, you know... Um, possibly fairly unregulated industry as well, you know, where someone can have two or 300 dogs and no one's necessarily setting the standard uh, other than the feedback that consumers will give. Right. Uh, As, as what happened with that kennel, like dogs with uh, really bad injuries, very dirty. Uh, You know, I have a bit of a routine and the routine takes two hours. And that routine involves uh, going do- down to the dogs, making sure none of them are, are caught on their chains, both morning and evening. And also cleaning up, uh, you know, all, all their mess, if there's any, giving them water. And uh, every evening I put um, moose meat in two big crock pots that cooks overnight. And in the morning, in the winter, they get a bit of broth, right? Because it's it's been a cold night and they're burning a lot of calories. And then, you know, I'll add some pumpkin and brown rice to that. And they need a good, <laughs> like yourself, you, you need a good warm meal if you're outside all day in the winter, right? And if you've been working. And so uh, it's not necessarily warm, but I mean, hot, but it's, it's, it's a good meal. So I feed them at night before they go to bed. Uh, none of their ribs are showing or anything like that, but it's expensive to buy good, high calorie, high protein, high fat dog food. And if, if you've got a big kennel, it's a winter that's uh, been affected by climate change or COVID and you don't have clients, uh, you, you need a lot of money every month to buy dog food, you know, for that amount of dogs, it could be like $7,000 a month. And wow. so, yeah, yeah, that's for 22 dogs. No, 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 no. That's oh. for like 200. Right. Oh, okay. if you're, so myself, um, like I work really close, um, with the hunters in the community and this time of year in the fall, when they're hunting, I get a lot of scraps of really good, high quality moose or deer meat. And I'm very busy. Uh, with my family, uh, my daughter's been helping me right now, Johanna, putting away this meat in the freezers. And it keeps it out of the garbage dumps, too. And it's yeah. this idea of being resourceful with with food and food waste uh, that's of good quality, right? Yeah. So I feel bad for these kennel owners. I don't think it's their intention to treat the dogs this way. But then they hit, hit the reality of what they're involved in, I think. Um, and they're subject to the market and the fluctuations in market. So 
dog sledding hasn't been a, a business per se for me. Uh, it's been a passion and a hobby, but I do offer it to two guests, but just two guests at a time. Um, and I, and I try to, I try to keep that balance. So things don't slip into a bad situation where, where dogs like you witnessed and we saw in the news look, looked abused. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's great. I always, because I always did wonder, you know, if someone doesn't have the awareness of what they're stepping into and you're dealing with a, a very precious life, you know, that dogs, any animal, right. And, and it's, they're dependent if they're not out there, you know, hunting like a wolf is that they become very dependent on their, on the person who's, you know, taking care of them. Right. That's exactly it. That is exactly it. Yeah. So speaking of wolves, can you tell us a little bit about? <laughs> that was a segue. <laughs> Abused dogs. I'm, I'm learning wolves. from from you, Gord. I'm learning from you. So, so tell us about the wolves, and also even the differences or similarities, um, you know, between the dogs and the wolves. That what you have experienced. Yeah, what are you researching? Yeah, so the wolf research I kind of stumbled into. Um, I was working with the Algonquin community of Wolf Lake under one of the longest serving chiefs in Algonquin contemporary history. That was Chief St. Dennis, Harry St. Dennis. Um, he, he's passed now, but I, I spent, uh, I guess, a good 15 years working with Chief Harry. And at one point... Uh, one of the forest companies here wanted to log this valley called the Maganasibi, which in Algonquin translates to Wolf River. Aye, wow. Aye. And so that had been in their uh, toponymy since time immemorial. Like, so, you know, they named that area after the wolves. And when we were in there doing the forest conservation work, we'd be marking boundaries so that you know, forest industry wouldn't come in and cut the canyon. I mean, there's some really beautiful forests in there, like representative of many forest types, uh, red pine, white pine, uh, some actually some red oak up in the higher elevations. But but what's truly unique about this particular area of the Maganasibi is in the early, uh, or I'll say mid 1800s, early 1900s, the lumber barons who were working in the Ottawa River Valley chose to not log that area. They started high grading it and they realized it was an excellent resource for hunting and fishing. And all those, all those lumber barons and their parliamentary friends in Ottawa decided, let's make this an exclusive hunting and fishing territory. So it didn't really get impacted by hunting. So what you had here is like fairly intact ecosystem in terms of forestry, in terms of the forest environment. Yeah. And it also supported the game, like the prey for wolves and a wolf population. Um, I mean, laws have laws have been in parallel, uh, I would say, in that valley um, with moving indigenous peoples out of that area as well as wolves like you know if you want to draw a comparison between the indian act and um the bounties that were on wolves trying to move them off the territory but i would say both were fairly resilient around that particular area and 
Um, you know, certainly uh, Wolf Lake First Nation maintained some uh, trap lines right into recent history in there. And uh, the wolf population, trying to come full circle here, Alex, when I was walking in and out of there, we'd walk out after a day's work and we'd see wolf scat. It was like they were keeping an eye on us in and out. And that was new to me. I didn't know that. I didn't know that about wolves. And uh, this research project, the Mahingan Wolf Stewardship Project, has been really cool because I've um, interviewed uh, quite a few Anishinaabe Algonquin members of different communities to talk about their traditional relationship with wolf, their brotherhood with wolf. And what I found out in those interviews is like, you know, myself personally, when a wolf's come up to me or wolf's been close and barked or done something. I'm, I, I was tending to think of that um, just in a personal isolated sense, like, oh, that wolf's trying to talk to me. Maybe that's a unique thing I've got going on with this wolf. It's not true. It happens to all humans. They're, su they're super curious. They want to check you out if you're on the territory and they're reaching out for that relationship. So some of the guys will say to me, like they've been stuck in the woods, having a hard time, like, something broke down or whatever, they'll bed down because they're forced to and some wolves will come in and they'll come in around them and they'll spend the night and the guys will say, you know what? I felt safe. Really? And, yeah. And I've had, I have so hmm. many stories like that because it's I've done so haunting. many interviews. It's a very yeah. haunting sound. There was, when I was in university, we used to go up to Manitoulin Island and yes. the one, one winter we went up there we took our canoes and we went in like quite a few miles and stayed at this log log cabin called the hunt camp, basically. And, we, you know, we didn't see anything at all. The, we then had a massive snowstorm and uh, it was too big for our skidoos. So a couple of days later, finally, the farm people that had our cars, they came in on big, huge machines, you know, <laughs> they, and they started taking us out, you know, with quite a one or two at a time at the most. I was yeah. the last one left in the cabin. And I was sitting and there was just a glow of this, everything's gone and, and just the silence. And you could hear the wolves starting. Nice. And it was so haunting. It's just, it's a <laughs> memory that is logged into my brain solidly, you know. I love that. Yeah. It was, uh, I mean, I, I, I was safe. I was inside the cabin, you know. You know, I wasn't running around looking out the windows or anything, but it was pretty, it was haunting. That's all I can say. It was, it was a haunting experience. It's pretty cool how they come around. Like, it's pretty cool how they come around and they don't come around to hurt you. Like, I mean, there's this um, false narrative, I would say, um, that, you know, wolves are coming in to rip you apart. And I think that's a real settler settler story. Right. Um, and it, it helped facilitate the settlement, um, you know, the taking away of the lands and everything else that, yeah. that happens so that, uh, we as white settlers could could make that occupation happen and and not be fearful. But honestly, if you open up the space, it's pretty cool. Like I, I've had so many times they've come in, and I can see how the people I interview interviewed reflect. Like, yeah, I feel like they're my brother. I feel like they're there for me. You know, uh, and and so we all know this. We all have dogs. You know, yeah, yeah. this is the same family. If you like, if you look at in Anishinaabe stories, Nanabush stories, like 
um, Natabush said to the creator, like, why do all the other animals have partners and I don't have a partner? And so the creator gave Natabush wolf to, to walk the world with. Right. And, and wolf was his guide and teacher and wolf, wolf like taught him how to hunt. Right. And, and wolf fed him and wolf kept him warm too, if he needed it. Right. And we forget, we forget that history or we've ignored that history. And it's like in research, um, what does it mean? Like, I think Narcisse blood said this, um, and he's a he was a Blackfoot uh, academic scholar, um, you know, from the prairies. And he said, what does it mean when you neglect all the knowledge that was here before you? Like, you can't yeah. neglect all that stuff. Like, what does it mean? And that's kind of where we're at right now. We're at this crossroads. Like, how do we reconnect? Like, and what is the value in that reconnection? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we change these narratives or learn new narratives? And yeah. Yeah. yeah well, I was just going to say, it's, it's similar to like the conqueror, you know, uh, in any war or whatever, is the history then begins with the conqueror. Whatever went before is, is you know, put down, <laughs> is forgotten about. And it picks up now with the settlers, you know, the, yeah. the new the new. Well, and it's, it goes, exactly, Gord. And also, Roseanne, you know, it goes back to, the um, colonization. And, you know, I was just at a, a course last night, Jennifer Drummond, and we were talking about the, um, the idea of, well, the reality of how basically so many resources were just taken and the uh, learning, learnings and the, and the lessons and the relationship to the land and the animals and, and all everything, the water, trees that the indigenous people have and had was completely destroyed in terms of an attempt to like writing a narrative that, oh my God, you have to be scared of wolves or, you know, oh, it's dangerous out there. And that question that you said, how do we create a new narrative? And part of it is having people like you on the podcast to put that out there to say, hey, there's something here that we all need to listen to and we can all relate to very differently. Because, yeah, everything we see in the movie industry, typically about wolves, at least mostly that I've seen, has always been danger. You know, if you're Mm -hmm. alone in in the woods, then the wolves are going to come and tear you apart and eat you. Yeah. And I mean, wolves are interesting, right? Because they they teach us to, to have boundaries and respect each other's boundaries. And I see that in the kennel here, too. Like, you know... We do have to be respectful of each other's boundaries, but when they sense there's respect, then they open it to more, you know? Mm-hmm. And and I that's I feel that's another thing we've lost track of too. It's like the respect element. And um yeah, there's there's a lot of important work that needs to be done. And I think it starts simply. Like even Alex, like you said, you walked into the dog yard at my place the the first time and you're, you're immediately fearful. Like it's the first response, but you need to trust, uh, the person who's been with the dogs that these dogs are, have not been raised to be mean or angry. And then, and then just get comfortable with a different type of relationship with, with a canine or a wolf. Right. Yes. And, and this is really different. And, 
So when I've been uh, working with our team doing capture and collar um, of the particular eastern wolves in the Maganesebe uh, River uh, Valley that I was talking about earlier. So we, we ended up uh, developing a research project in there to find out more about these wolves. Like what was, what, who is the population? Like who are the wolves and what are they basically doing in there? So what we found out is uh, they are a unique species. Um, genetically, they're all coming up as eastern wolves, which are like a little deer hunting wolf. Uh, they're smaller than the gray wolves, and um, they they have a they have a distinct pattern of operating in there. Like in in the this time of year, they're they're hunting deer, and when the deer move into the deer yards for the winter on the southern slopes, uh, south facing slopes under big pine stands, they move into the deer yards and they hunt there all winter, and mm. so. When springtime comes and the, the creeks start flowing and things are melting, then they'll go back to beaver hunting. So their, their diet's mostly beaver in the summer. Oh, um, but, you know, them? man has had, or humans have had so much effect on the environment and how we decide to manage it. Like really deers should be in the deer yard all winter browsing on twigs. And, you know, that's the right uh, stuff that they should have in their diet in the winter. Like that's how they're genetically engineered. And instead we're like buying bags of corn for right. 40, 40 bucks a bag. And we want them eating in our front yard and yeah. feeding them carrots yeah, and, and, and then maybe yeah. later shooting them. So yeah. this is, this is probably the biggest uh, thing that's happening now is like people are feeding deer in their yards and all of a sudden wolves are moving in. Yeah. And it's like, oh no, there's like wolves coming in my backyard and, and, and this and that. And it's because they're following their prey. Right. Right. And I'm and... going to be preyed upon but, you know, <laughs> if I don't cut you off, okay. we have to break for two minutes and we'll be right back with Roseanne. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Imagine a place where ancient wisdom and modern research combine to create a non-judgmental, dynamic educational environment. We believe learning is much more than just theories. It is the application of those theories that anchor your learning deep inside yourself. Our physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual selves are embraced and nurtured, learning how to create an internal balance. This is Transformational Arts College of Spiritual and Holistic Training. Since 1988, we continue our mission of spiritually focused education for all who seek. We offer integrative personal development and professional training in spiritual psychotherapy, holistic health care, spiritual director, coaching, and esoteric studies. We are located in Lawrence Park in Toronto on Young Street, north of Lawrence Avenue. It's easy to get to and harder to leave. Visit our website at transformationalarts.com or inquire at TAC at transformationalarts.com or call us toll free at 1-888-TAC-SELF. Transformational Arts, bringing body, mind, and spirit together. Unravel the mysteries of metaphysics every week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Join host Barb Crowley 
as she and her insightful guest share what's been learned behind the veil, going just beyond our five senses. Now you can see things with an entirely different point of view. Tune in for Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil, broadcasting live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Use it to explore your advantage and deeper understanding. You are listening to Things Worth Considering with Gord Riddell and Alexia Georgiousis. We'd love to hear from you via email to info at spiritgrows.ca. That's info at spiritgrows.ca. Now back to Things Worth Considering. Welcome back. And we're here with Roseanne. We're talking right now about wolves, uh, another of the canine family connections. Yes. You had a question. I did. I had a question about the wolves hunting beaver and how do they do this? I'm really curious because I've never seen this. You know, I love nature programs, but I've never, I've never actually seen a wolf hunting a beaver. Yeah, that's a great question. And I kind of learned that through research. Um, I was seeing uh, the wolf's GPS collar reporting at a beaver dam quite a bit. And I actually thought that maybe um, the wolf had lost its collar or something because it was spending way too much time at this particular area. So I actually went to the beaver dam and um, the signal was like in the water. So I thought, oh, maybe it, it had lost its collar in the water or something like this. But what was happening is that the wolves, and this is what I learned through the research is the wolves will stay there right by the dam because they know the beavers come there and they do their little repairs or they're doing whatever and they go in the forest and they get a bit of feed and they drag it over and stuff they, they just wait and um and i've asked different trappers like because beavers can be very vicious i'm actually a little scared of beavers i'm more scared of beavers than wolves <laughs> <laughs> I have a funny story about this. Yeah, uh, my, my, kid, my kids and I were on a canoe trip and yeah. uh, I don't know, it was late. We couldn't find a camp spot. And there was this one curve in the river that had a lot of sand. And so I said, okay, we've got to pull over because the, it was the cherry river and it, it was windy and it had a lot of like tag alder shores and stuff. Right, so there right. wasn't a lot of place to camp. So of course, tag alders, beavers love it. We're right in beaver territory. So we set up the tent. The beaver's smacking its tail in, in yes. the river because yes. I think I was maybe on his sandbar. I'm not really sure. So anyway, we're all in the tent. We're all in the tent sleeping. <laughs> not sleeping, but getting ready to do that. Yeah. And and this beaver comes up to the tent and it starts going like, Mm, mm, mm. like doing all these little noises and really? I said I said to the kids don't go out there like we're not going out we're not falling for that but it happens I've heard it happen and I've also seen a video out of Temiskaming First Nation of a wolf chasing a beaver down like and like I've talked to trappers, how do they kill them? Yeah. Like they, they try to flip them onto their belly, right? To the soft right. spot or right, right. like jump on their chest. Yeah. Uh, but it's a fight. It's it's a fight. It's tough out there. It's not hard. I mean, it's not easy being a wolf 
Or a beaver, mm. probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> probably, exactly. Could you do an interview around that uh, to report back to us? <laughs> So, Roseanne, what's the, what do you find the, the differences, or I mean, there's obvious similarities in terms of wolves and dogs and the working dogs, but what do you find that's different about them, especially around the lessons or the guidance that you've received? Well, you know, when I, when I see a captured wolf and, you know, I've set the trap uh, to capture the wolf, to collar the wolf, um, I, I come in in a respectful way, not an aggressive way. And because I work in a, a dog yard or a dog kennel daily, I make I make daily connections with canines, like not necessarily communicating, but just looking over at them. They're looking back at me like, okay, how are you doing? And you start to be able to read, read things, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's the same thing when I come up to the wolves. I usually do that eye to eye but not in an aggressive way, Mm. just like, okay, I'm here. I know you're trapped. I'm going to give you some space. And I let them watch me. And so I'll walk around and uh, to help them out of the trap, I have what's called a Y pole. And so I go up to them with this pole that's padded shaped as a Y and it has a long handle and I just give it to them. And generally they attack it. They Mm -hmm. expect it to bite. They're expecting something else. And then they realize, okay, this thing's not fighting me. And they look at you. They look at you. So you have another opportunity to have this connection. And then I just kind of put it gently around uh, the back of their head and hold them down. And then I tranquilize them and remove them from the trap and then put the collar on. And when I revive them and send them back out with their collar, they always look at me. There's always an acknowledgement, but Mm. they don't like I create a safe space for them. And so I want it to be a good energy. I don't necessarily agree with the type of research doing that. It is invasive, um, but it's really what's going to help save them. Because in this case, in Quebec, this particular species of wolf is on the threatened list uh, federally. Oh, really? Uh, and there's a management plan hopefully moving into place pretty soon. But Quebec doesn't recognize them on their species at risk list. And so trappers or individuals. Well, Quebec has its own species at risk list. Um, and this could be part of this question of colonialism and moving into new space. But there's a strong mentality that wolves are seen as competitors for hunters for deer and we need to get rid of wolves and we need to be shooting deer as humans and so this is this is part of this complex management dynamic where we find ourselves in right now where you know nature has given wolf that role and responsibility to structure the uh, populations below it, you know, including the deer population. So you have a really strong genetic pool. You have a really strong ecosystem building underneath. Right. And now we've intervened so much that those, those populations are all suffering. Yeah. 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 Yeah, We know best, right? That's, it's a kind of a strange mentality, but, and it's, it's not an Anishinaabe mentality, right? 
They've yeah. always viewed themselves as part of the system, not like being in control of the system. Right. So this is something we can learn uh, and need to learn. And I feel our learning, um, but we're very resilient in our unsustainability. Mm. I'll, I'll, I'll have to say that. <laughs> That's a great way to say it. Yeah. yeah. Well, with working with the Algonquin, um, uh, what, what, what are you taking away from working with them? That must have been awesome. Yeah, a lot of really great relationships, mostly. Like, um, it's, I, I've, I've really been privileged to be welcomed into their space. And, um, and I've had, they have a wonderful sense of humor. <laughs> Gord, like I've had so many good laughs too, right? And and that keeps me in there. And there's been a lot of painful things too because um, they've been in a tough position here historically. There's been a lot of oppression. There's there's a lot of social repercussions to that oppression. And I I want to be there too that way, you know, to help support and and feel feel their pain a bit. Like you know, we we also have to do that. You know, yeah. I think that's part of the reconciliation is uh, we got to we got to feel that pain. And to do that, you got to be there um, and then help. You got to show up. It. Yeah, you got to show up. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was that was just a slight punch at uh, the prime minister. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Unreal, right? Oh, it is totally unreal. Totally. But that but that's how re- that's how resilient colonialism is. Mm-hmm. That's a good well demonstration said. Well of said. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it also it also took uh, you know our attention then away from what it was about. Now media is over here talking about the prime minister. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. wow, yeah. that's a narcissistic move. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. just re, yeah, we refocused the attention. Yeah. That, it was it was very very unfortunate. Very unfortunate. So, you know, Roseanne you know, when you speak about the wolves, and I'm just listening to your words and feeling also the energy that's, that's very palpable around the yeah. depth of your connection and your your ability to be with this energy. Because, yes, I do remember when I first, you know, came on to meet meet the dogs, and it was it was pretty intense because you know seeing these 22 very large uh, dogs, <laughs> some staring at me, some you know barking, some like. Mm. And, and it is a really wonderful practice of being able to be part of nature and recognizing what, what is fear really about? Why am I afraid of nature? Why am I afraid of life? And, and the respect aspect. So there's so many layers here that, that are really wonderful teaching points of, as, as humanity hopefully becomes more evolved. Yeah. You know? Well, we've, we've separated ourselves so much from nature. You know, uh, that's our, probably our biggest, you know, you were starting to touch on this, Roseanne, you know, sort of having dominion over, you know, <laughs> like we're, we're over and above. We know what's going on for everything and we act accordingly. And it's it's uh, it's totally, you know, turned us into a death denying, uh, almost birth denying uh, a society. You know, anything that's kind of yucky, we move out of the house. We have places to send people. You know, so we've lost that sense of just being in nature, the, the cyclical part of, of uh, uh, the seasons that we go through that in our life. You know, it's like it, we could go that through that in a day from winter to summer, you know, um, and we're just so out of touch with that. 
Yeah, that's unfortunate. And, and you feel it. Uh, you feel we're out of balance. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, sure, sure. We, so I think, you know, this is a global consciousness. Like, we're feeling out of balance. And now we're wondering, like, how do we come back into balance? And, like, historically, like, nature provided all these free services, like trees and and, and fish and air and water and, and medicines. And, and now we're like, and now we're like, Oh, now we, as humans, we provide these services and we charge for them. And, you know, I think we're free. And so, so there's, there's a lot. lot. (laughs) And and it's now like, it's like, how do we come back to like, Oh, wow. Like this other setup had a lot of free services. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. like a little walk in the woods could actually probably calm you right down. Right. Yeah. 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 And so it's reconnecting, uh, rebalancing, but also one thing I've learned from the community peoples I work is like the importance of ceremony, like just yeah, respecting these things when you see them, uh, respecting that wolf when it comes to you, like putting like the Anishinaabe will put down tobacco, but make your offering and make your payback. Like it's time for us to pay back nature. Now we've been, we've been withdrawing, withdrawing, withdrawing. It's like, okay, how do I pay you back? You've been looking after us for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Roseanne, thank you for coming and taking care of us. Uh, It was wonderful having you on. I'm fascinated by everything you've been talking about. Yeah. It's uh, fantastic. It's just fantastic. Ritual is just so important. Uh, And it's a great place for us to, to be able to end. So thank you for being here. Um, if Thank I can, you very me, much. Uh, uh, our pleasure. Let me tell you about next week. We have this amazing woman called Cheryl uh, Stevens. She's a numerologist. She's an amazing artist. She's also a cabaret singer. In fact, she'll be singing right here on our show. Uh, there will also be a couple of really good deals that she's offering uh, to listeners of things worth considering. But you have to tune in and be here next week to be able to listen to her. And she'll tell you then what her deals are. Uh, so that's next Thursday, October 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern and 5 p.m. Pacific. We hope you will join us uh, at that time. I'm Gord Riddell. I'm here with uh, Alexia Georgiousis, and we wish you a great week here at Things Worth Considering. Be well. Thanks, Roseanne. Good night, everyone. Thank you for tuning into Things Worth Considering. Please join your hosts, Alexia Georgiousis, and Gord Riddell for another edition next Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, think about the connections in your life and how they define who you are.